Please sit down. Chip, take it away. Well, good evening. It's great to see so many of you, some of you eager to come and hear about what God, God's Word says. I think I don't recognise any visitors or new people to church. Yeah, same old crowd. It's wonderful. Lovely to have you all, family. Um, I'm beginning our set of 10 sessions by looking at a very special topic that is slightly set apart from what we'll be doing throughout the rest of the week, but is integral and essential to it. And that is really how to read the Bible, how to get to grips with it, how to understand it rightly, that we might rightly understand it as we go into it deeper over the next few days over this week. It's what technically is called biblical hermeneutics, and I'll put that word up on the screen in just a moment. It's quite a long word, and there'll be about four long words, I promise, only four today that I'm going to talk about, and they'll all be up on the screen, and you'll understand the meaning by the end of it if you don't already. But first, um, those represent the Old and New Testament. Not quite the most common words, but some of the most common words. And interestingly, they're not the same set of words. There is a change in the frequency of certain words compared to others between the Old and New Testament. And that um, is just a kind of visual aid for some of you who like pictures to orientate yourself around. You see some of the words that are used in both halves of the Testament. It's been estimated that the Bible has close to, depending on which translation you use, a million words in it. That's a lot of words. In fact, it's the most used book for computer passwords. don't know if you realise that. If you, if you want to generate a really easy computer password... Go to a page in the Bible, look at the reference, Jeremiah 3, and then look at the sixth verse. So Jeremiah 3, verse 6, and the word is during. And so all you need to do is put in as your password either um, 75836 or the word during, and both of them will work because they relate to a certain book at a certain place. And millions of people have done that with the Bible, as with other books as well, to create passwords. It's a very popular book, but not just, let me say, for computer passwords. It is still the world's most printed book, though actually not the most distributed book. As many of you know from a friend of mine who says this often, it's actually the IKEA catalogue. But... It's still, I would say, the most valued and treasured book that has ever been given to us. I'm going to add to Mike's prayers earlier before we look at it. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you'd help us, Lord, to understand it rightly, to rightly handle it and apply it to our lives. Amen. Well, I'm going to begin with a story. Uh, Dr. Emil Calais, uh, who f a few years ago was a professor at Princeton in America, was for a long time a doyen, a, a pinnacle of his theological area of biblical hermeneutics, of understanding the Bible. He was one of the best around, but as a young man, he was a complete 
atheist. He hated the church, he hated Christianity, and for a very good reason, he felt. He'd been drafted as a Frenchman during World War I and had witnessed right in front of him the terrible pain and suffering of humanity. And it left him with what most people would say now is post-traumatic stress syndrome. And as he left the army after World War I, these things wouldn't leave his mind. The explosions that continued to ring in his ears, his fellow friends who had seemed blown to pieces, the traumatic memories. And to try and deal with this, he started to compile a book of useful wisdom and proverbs that he heard around the place, like a stitch in time saves nine and things like that. And he compiled this book, and he called this book, on the front, the book that would understand me. And he got to the end of compiling this huge book and sat down and read it through in a single session. And he, he dropped his shoulders and said, oh, this is useless, this doesn't help me at all. I spent years compiling this book, and he, he just sunk further into depression. Unbeknown to him, his wife had actually been invited by the Lord, been prompted to go into a French Huguenot church around about the same time. And when she got there, one of the community there offered her a Bible to take home. And she said, well, I'm going to take it, but I'm going to hide it because I know what my husband will say if he sees this Bible. But she started to want to read it, so she used to read it in secret. And one day, Emil, her husband, spotted her doing this and said, okay, well, give me the book. I know what book you're reading. Let me try reading it. And his words are this, that for the first time, after reading for several hours of the of the New Testament, he found something that fascinated him. When he finally got to the end of the Bible, bowing his head, he said, at last I have found the book that understands me. And then and then, actually, he gave his life to Christ because he read the Bible. Because he'd found a book like no other book that understood him, actually. It was the creator's word to the created it was a book that made sense of the universe and the way things are, and the book that has got greater wisdom than all the collected human wisdom in the world. And it's very telling that later on in life he became a professor of biblical hermeneutics, an expert in the Bible, because of that one encounter, just how powerful it is. And there are many other testimonies about this book, the power it can have, the old school uh, of a certain generation Bible translator, J.B. Phillips, not to age anyone here, but you might remember him, translated the Bible, uh, the New Testament at least, during World War II for schoolboys, actually, who wanted to translate into their parlance and understanding. And he described the experience like this. He said it was like an electrician wiring an ancient house without being able to turn the mains off. It was that powerful, just as he was translating it. There's a great story from um, my homeland, my family's homeland of India, of um, someone called Sadhu Sundar Singh, who I've mentioned a few times here. And he was on a train to Bombay, or Mumbai, as it's known now. And across from him, in the carriage, was this Indian, scary-looking... 
he, we would say Brahmin, but actually he was just an obnoxious curse giver. And this guy was putting the evil eye on him all the way through this train journey. And as they left the train together, the guy who was intent on cursing Sadhu Sundar Singh said, I've been trying to put a curse on you all this train journey because I recognize that you're Christian, but I haven't been able to because there's something in your breast pocket that's stopping me being able to. And Sadhu Sundar Singh reaches into his breast pocket and pulls out his copy of the New Testament and says, read it and weep. It's that, it's the Bible. It's the power of God's word. It's a really powerful book. Really powerful. I've heard of prisoners unable to read the Bible, but actually literally just putting their heads on it under the pillow as they went to sleep and finding complete peace, realizing that even the words underneath their head, they might not understand them completely, but what they do understand of it is bringing peace and helping them in the midst of storms. Well, I'm starting with all those stories for a reason, because I'm sure everyone here has found this book to be powerful like that. It's a special book. It's a privilege to have this book. People died so that we can have it. And if it is so, we ought to therefore want to know how to rightly understand it and use it and make the most of it as it's in our hands. So the question that I'm looking at is, how do we fully unleash the power of the Bible? Um, and first and foremost, I want to say that for the power of the Bible to be fully unleashed, for it to change our lives, we need to have a right understanding of how to read it and what type of book it is to begin with. You see, what type of book it is will change how you read it. I've read, to my shame or perhaps to my accolade, Pride and Prejudice. And Cathy um, <laughs> Bates going, yes, a man that's read it. <laughs> And if I were to read Pride and Prejudice as a manual on 19th century engineering, I'm not going to get much out of it. And I didn't do it with that intention. You'll be pleased to know. But if you were to read that book as the author intended it, partially as a commentary on the upper echelons of the 19th century and the social system, Actually, you'd learn a lot about that from it. The type of book you think it is, whether it's a textbook or a commentary on social situations, will change how you read it and what information you get out of it. So we need to know what type of book the Bible is. This is really simple stuff for some of you. Sorry if it's like teaching grandma to suck eggs, but we need to know what type of book this is. And so to understand what type of book this is, we need to look at what this book says about itself. Does that make sense? How it describes itself so we can rightly read it on its own terms. Okay, so we're looking at this first section. What does the Bible say about the Bible? I'm just gonna pull up a few key verses that many of you will know and love. So first key verse, uh, 2 Tim 3.16, one of the great 3.16s. Can someone either find it and read it out loud, or someone's memorized it, you can just do it from memory. Or off the screen, someone please. Shall I start us off? All scripture is God-breathed.
wonderful. So that is one of the key statements that the Bible says about itself that helps us to orientate ourselves as to how we're to read this book. Let me look at a few phrases of it. You've done this before. So it says, all scripture. So the Bible claims about itself that every single part of this book is helpful in these things that it describes. Paul here in 2 Timothy is speaking specifically, we think about the Old Testament But the witness of the church and actually within the New Testament of apostles towards each other is that the New Testament is to be thought of in the same way that all of it is useful. And then next key phrase, it says that it is God-breathed. Now that's a really important thing for us to understand. This idea of God-breathed, literally the breath of God breathing it into being, helps us to understand the nuanced nature of the Bible. We don't believe, like in Islam, that God robotically wrote through the human authors. We don't believe that. He gave them some agency in this. He gave them the ability to be in partnership with him. He inspired them and breathed through them these words. They were his words, but through them as people in situations and contexts that were very real. He didn't just take over Paul and says, right, you're no longer Paul, you're, you're me for a while, and I'm just going to take over your hand and write everything like that, and Paul had no say of it. It was a very special and unique way of understanding divine inspiration. And actually, a, a verse that helps us with this is this. It's 2 Peter 1, verses 20 to 21, where it says, the prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the idea. The Bible says that these are God's words, God breathed words through people as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write these words. Very important to get this distinction right. Because that means that there is a divine understanding of God's word. It's his word. But we also have to grapple with the human understanding that these are also human words with context and situations and personalities at play that help us to understand God's word. Okay. Next bit, it says it's useful for teaching. Oh, this is obvious. Uh, We do a lot of this. We are looking to be taught by God. We could never understand God were it not for the fact that God reveals himself. We know from the religions of the world that when people try to make up God, they go all over the place, all kinds of images and all kinds of ideas. But we believe that none of that's eventually going to get to God. We needed God to reveal himself to us instead. And that means that he teaches us about himself first and foremost. He teaches us about the world that he's created. And he teaches us about ourselves. John Calvin, uh, in his Institutes of Christian Religion, or Christianity, um, he said that the key understanding that the Bible imparts is first of all a knowledge of God And then secondly, a knowledge of self. It's in his preface to it. 
in his instance, a knowledge of God and a knowledge of self. And that's what the Bible at heart does, actually. Then it says it's useful for training. As we read the Bible, it claims to be able to train us, to reprogram us, to change our very thought patterns and our heart. These are big claims, actually. Some of us may think we're just stuck in certain ways of thinking and being, but the testimony of many in this room is that this book, these words, can change us from the inside out. Nextly, it says correcting. We don't like this word in a postmodern context, that sometimes we need to be corrected. But it's true, we sometimes go off on certain directions in certain ways that aren't, as, a, as some conservative friends say, helpful. They just aren't helpful. They're just rubbish. And they end up in errancy and dangerous territory. And we need God's word to completely control us to keep us coming back to the safe path and then even stronger rebuking sometimes we need to stand up and say no that is wrong because of the word of God says that that is wrong and actually there is a right and proper way to do that even within the church community to one another in love in gentleness to say no we're, we read the same book and the book says differently to what you're saying, what you're doing. I just need to bring this before you. Say, no, that's wrong. That is wrong. Okay, so lastly in this verse, for every good deed, that they might be equipped for every good deed. So the reason that this isn't a textbook, that's not the right way to understand it, is because it's not just about imparting information about God and ourselves actually meant to lead to action first and foremost may it lead to us turning to christ and putting our faith and trust in his work at the cross but also may it lead to a changed life on every level from that moment as we're convicted by it we change how we speak how we act and we change our hopes for the future the direction of our life from a day-to-day -day perspective Okay, one more that I want to look at very quickly about what the Bible says about itself. Romans 15, verse 4. This one that Mike read out earlier. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. A bit of a lesser-known verse from the New Testament but again, this is the Bible speaking about itself and the way we're to understand it. That actually it gives instructions. We've looked at that, instructs us in the way that we should be. And this is a wonderful thing. It gives endurance and encouragement. We had a word this morning during the morning service from the end of Isaiah 40 about those who are weary. How those who hope in the Lord will not grow faint. That's a word of encouragement from God's word that brings that encouragement and endurance, the, the long stay of the Christian life that is empowered by these words. And that end poll, it says that we might have hope. That idea that actually this book is full of promises for the future, that it's a present book and it's a future book, and that we might have hope in those promises. 
I've got a great quote here from someone who I love, um, Soren Kierkegaard, who said this, when you read God's word, you must constantly be saying to yourself, it is talking to me and about me. If you want the encouragement, if you want the endurance of scripture, if you want the hope that it brings, to really apply that verse, you really need to say, this is talking to me. Whenever you're reading the Bible, whenever in the morning you're reading the Bible and you're thinking about all these strange things, all the ancient contexts and all the grappling that you're doing with God's word, the primary way to see it is that this is talking to me and about me. And ask the Lord, Lord, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me? And then lastly, uh, very quickly... I wanted to point to a couple of things that Jesus said about the Bible. He says, John 5, verse 13, in argumentations with religious teachers of the time, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And then Luke 24, 27, after his resurrection, uh, the Emmaus Road, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus' view of scripture was very high, very, very high actually. And that's why primarily we can argue we can have a high view of scripture. But he said something very controversial as well, that actually primarily this book is about me. It points to me, it foreshadows me in the old, it expands on my ministry and my work in the new. It's about me. That's a huge claim. Of all the claims of Jesus, this is one of the biggest, actually. It's about me, this book. And so that means that whenever we're reading the Bible, as well as asking the question, how is this speaking to me? What's it saying to me? What's God saying to me? We're to say and ask the questions, how do I see Jesus in this? How do I see Jesus? What is Jesus being pointed to? What aspect of him? How do I understand Jesus being revealed in this situation? How is he being foreshadowed what he will do? How is it being explained in the New Testament? If it's about him, I want to see him in this book. And if you do that, I promise riches, real riches on every page seeing Jesus. Okay, well, that was a kind of an intro into what the Bible says about itself. The next part I want to ask is, Okay, so that's how we're to understand it on its own terms. Now we've got that understanding, what are the tools that we can use to dig into God's word on its own terms? And um, oh, this section, um, I think I've retitled it in the booklets, is about hearing God's voice clearly in the Bible and some principles of something called hermeneutics and exegesis. Uh, I'll explain those words in just a moment. But the first thing that I want you to understand in framing this is that this book enables a relationship with God. We've been talking about in those verses, the Bible speaking about God first and foremost as its orientating pole. That God breathed it into being, that it gives encouragement and hope that are rooted in him, that it's all about Jesus in the end. In a relationship with anyone, you need two-way communication. 
you need to be able to hear their voice and you need to be able to speak to them. We believe that primarily through prayer, we speak to God as well as in other ways. And the way that God speaks to us primarily is through this book. And so if one of those two key essentials of the Christian life isn't happening, that relationship is going to break down. I want you to imagine, though for some of you this isn't an imaginary thing, a marriage where only one person does the talking. I'm not going to ask you to say which uh, one of the married pair that you're in might be more like that. And the other person only does the listening. Well, that doesn't work, does it? It's, It's not a recipe for fruitfulness in that relationship. What is really needed is both a speaking to one another and a listening to one another. And so in your life, if your relationship with God is all about just talking to him, non-stop, I need this, I need that, oh God, why have you let this happen? And you don't do any of the listening, well, that's a recipe for disaster. And vice versa, actually, God needs to be able to speak when he wants to into your life and for you to be able to listen. And the primary way we enable that to happen is through this word, coming under it. He's able to speak to us and enable that two-way flourishing relationship to occur. Okay, so tools to enable that to happen. Uh, First, a few words to know. Um, So hermeneutics is the study of how to rightly interpret a text. I promise there's only four of these words. So when we say biblical hermeneutics, we're saying how do we rightly understand these things? Okay, and as part of that, we believe in something called exegesis. Now, exegesis is the actual interpretation of meaning from a text. So getting the meaning out of these words for right now. What did it originally mean? What did it mean to the original authors and the original context? So that I can use that further on in what's going to come. That's exegesis. Now, that's the opposite of this next word, which is eisegesis, which uh, I put down as the interpretation of a text by putting one's own meaning into it or onto it. So this isn't working from the Bible to us, saying, what does it mean? What's it saying from what it's originally meant to say? This is us saying, okay, I know what it means, and this is what it means. And the the thing is that we do this very easily. And part of learning how to read the Bible is to learn how to recognize when you're doing eisegesis and what true exegesis looks like. To recognize, well, no, I've just come in with some assumptions here. I think I know what this means, and therefore I've made it mean this. And therefore, there's great humility needed. Some of you have been reading the Bible for decades, much longer than myself, Mike or Adam. And you may think you know what the Word of God says. And perhaps you do, better than anyone else in the room, perhaps. But at the same time, there is a core to humility here that continually we don't say, I know what this means as we come to the Bible. But instead, we continually say, I want to know what it means. 
I want God to reveal what this text really means, as if I'd never encountered it before, as if it was fresh, and I'd never come with any presuppositions about what it means. I want to do exegesis, not eisegesis. And we'll see what the difference is in just a moment. And the last part, exposition, you might have heard of that word. And that is the application of a text to our lives. Once you've done the hard work of understanding a text and it's on its own terms, without putting your own agenda onto it, exposition really is the application of God's word. So you expose it to your life, you expose it to other things. We often used to talk about expository preaching, and that is coming out of the text to our lives and to our world, that direction of flow. Does that all make sense? A bit bit dry, a bit theoretical. We'll get into some actual reading of the Bible in just a moment. Now, to actually enable these things, um, I think the right way of understanding reading the Bible is to ask questions. And these aren't questions that are cynical questions. I don't really believe this book, so I don't really want to take it at face value, but rather faith-filled questions of, I love this book. I believe that this book will reveal God. I believe that this is God's revelation of himself, and I want to know what God will say. That it's got treasure, deep treasure, and I want the tools to uncover and mine that treasure. John Chrysostom, the best preacher of the early church, said this, It is a great thing, this reading of the scriptures, for it is not possible to expand the mind of scriptures. It's a well that has no bottom. Martin Luther said this, We must ever remain scholars here, and we cannot sound the depth of one single verse in scripture. We get hold of the ABC and that imperfectly. Another image that uh, helps some people is that this Bible, this book, is shallow enough for infants to be able to wade into, but at the same time, simultaneously so deep that elephants can swim in it and not touch the bottom. It works on every level. Well, to get to those steps, I'm going to put up four sets of questions that we can ask about parts of the Bible. And I think these might be in your notes. Are these in your notes? Great. Okay, so you don't need to read the dense writing on the screen. Uh, Let me go back. So the first set of questions when you come to a part of the Bible is to ask questions about language. Why is the writer or speaker chosen to write what they've said? Why have they used that particular language and these particular words? And sometimes it's useful to look at the original language if you have the opportunity to do that. And in this, you've got to understand something called the genre of writing. We'll be looking at that in just a moment. What type of writing is it? Is it a poem? Is it a letter? Is it a song? Because that will change how you understand it. Okay, the next set of questions that you need to use are questions that relate to the whole book. Because we believe that you should never take one verse of Scripture, one passage of Scripture, apart from the whole of the Bible. You don't take it in isolation. That leads to dangerous territory that I was talking about earlier. Because this book fits together. And therefore, it helps you to interpret any part of it. 
So how is this particular bit of the book or the particular words or verses that I'm looking at related to the wider book that I'm in? And how is it related to all of Scripture? And Adam, in a moment, in the next talk, is going to be talking about the salvation plan that will help you to understand where it fits in, actually. Whereabouts in that timeline of God's revealed salvation plan is it? If you're looking at the New Testament, well, are there Old Testament texts that help me understand it? Whichever testament you're in, are there other parts of the Bible that help me to understand this? Using the principle, using Scripture to interpret Scripture. Because it's self-consistent as God's revelation. He's not a God of confusion. So if there's a bit of the Bible that's hard to understand, there may be another part of the Bible that when you put alongside it will bring clarity. It all fits together. Okay, the next one. Um, Socio-historical context. So what's the setting of these verses or this particular part of the Bible? How does that influence what's being said? How does that nuance and give me understanding about this verse? We'll do more of that in just a moment. And lastly, church history. Um, what's been said about this particular part of the Bible by others? We've got a great heritage of 2,000 years of global commentary on parts of the Bible. Every single verse I can guarantee in the Bible has been thought about has been wrestled with by others. And in humanity we ask, well, what have they said? What have we come to understand about these particular verses? If you see something brand new in the Bible, a brand new doctrine or understanding of God, I just want to say in advance, you've probably got it wrong. Because 2,000 years worth of people have gone into getting our current understanding of things. I wonder what that is. <laughs> And so we're to humbly say, okay, well, if people over the generations have spent the time trying to understand this book, what does it say according to their interpretation of things? You might need a few of these books I'm going to show you in just a moment to understand that. Though. Okay, I'm going to stop the theoretical stuff and apply it to this verse. So I want you to go to your partner next to you and apply those four sets of questions to this verse. Think in four different ways about John 3.16. Very well-known verse. Got about two or three minutes for this. Don't worry about how good you are, is. You are at this. Don't worry if you're just focusing on one particular question out of the four. But have a look at this verse and then ask these four sets of questions of it and then say what you've thought about as you've done this. So think about the language of the verse, why there are certain words, what words are particularly leaping out at you. Think about the wider breadth of Scripture, what other parts of Scripture help you to understand it. Think about the context. If you don't know where it is, read it in the original bit of John, in John 3.16, to understand the context. And what have you heard other people say about it in church history? Past and present, go. Go for it want to race through them um, because I don't want to overload you with information. So the first set of books that might help as you ask these questions are the different Bible translations themselves. So I just, um, I'm sorry this is really small script but I'm not going to go into much detail about this. I'll, you can have the slides afterwards if you want. 
There's a spectrum of different types of Bible translation you can use. On one end of the spectrum are those books that aren't actually translations. So the message, for example, is not a translation of the Bible. Do not say the message translation of the Bible, please. Eugene Peterson said it's a paraphrase, it's not a translation. So do not say that. It's not what he intends it to be. It's not a translation, it's a paraphrase. But on the other hand, are the really strong, closely linked to the original words, translations. And rather than tell you about all of them, here's a, a little diagram about the different translations. Some of the translations translate thought for thought. That actually we're going to loosely try and work out what thought was being intended to be conveyed by these words rather than the actual words themselves. And that's helpful in particular contexts. On the other end of the spectrum are translations where they say we want to get the original words from the Greek and Hebrew to be identical. And sometimes that can be very clunky, actually, because word orders are different between English and Greek and Hebrew, and grammatical phrases are different. We here in this church use the NIV, really, because it's right in the middle. It tries to do word for word as much as possible and thought for thought. It tries to have its cake and eat it. Um, my personal devotional stuff and what I use most regularly is something called the ESV, the English Standard Version, or the Especially Sound Version. Um, the King James is nearly as good in terms of word for word. But it might be that actually you prefer something along this edge of the spectrum, the New Living Translation or the Good News Translation. Those are more thought for thought. Whatever translation you choose, you need to know where it is along that spectrum because that will help you as you read it. If it's a thought for thought translation, you might just need to ask, okay, so what are the original words behind these thoughts? If it's a word for word, you might need to ask the question, okay, so what does this actually say? Because <laughs> it's really clunky here. What's it actually saying? So get a good range of Bible translations, I would say, so you can actually have a look at a number along that spectrum. Okay, um, sorry? If you've got a Bible app, it shows you them all anyway. Yeah, great, great. Okay, commentaries. So, in a lot of, ignore what it says on the screen because they're a tiny script and I want to talk about them by showing you the books themselves. So, here are some of my commentaries, my prized commentaries. Yeah, and um, if it helps, myself and Mike and Adam have a rather large amount of commentaries if you ever need a commentary on a book of the Bible. We're serious, actually. If you never want to dig into a book of the Bible, we have books on them, don't we, Mike? Yes. <laughs> um, here's a range. Here's a Tyndale commentary. That's probably one of the shortest commentaries about. It tries to do verse for verse, but very short verse for verse commentary on each verse. Of a similar length tend to be the Bible Speaks Today commentaries that some of you will have used. And again, that tries to cover most of the text, but in a very short and quick way. The next set of commentaries are technical commentaries. And there's the word biblical commentary, there's the New International Commentary in the New Testament, there's the Pillar New Testament commentaries, and there's a few others. The Baker Exegetical Commentary. Adam has some other favourites, no doubt. And these technical commentaries, I would say, use with caution. They do verse for verse, and they go into just about as much detail as possible for each verse, 
but so much so that you can get overloaded. So if you are preparing a Bible study on something, perhaps would I commend to you a technical commentary? Maybe. Most of the time I tend to commend the shorter commentaries to people. If you're preparing for a preach, I would say you need to look at a technical commentary. You need to look in a lot more depth. So it depends on what you're doing. Personal devotional use, well, take your choice, make your pick. Depends on how deep you want to go into a particular text. Okay, so commentaries that help. There are some really good all-in-one commentaries, by the way, like the Bible uh, commentary done by IVP, the new Bible commentary. They release a new version of this every five years or so. Commend getting a single volume commentary. There are background commentaries, which specifically go into that third set of questions about the context of different verses. And so this is the IVP Old Testament background commentary. It will talk about all the different cultural elements and geographical elements and historical elements as to what's going on verse to verse. Really good. I'm going to skip over a whole load of books. Um, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth is a book about what we're talking about, how to read the Bible, and it is what it says. And then lastly, a systematic theology of some kind. I've got one by Wayne Grudem here. There's lots of others about, and actually it depends on who you are as to what you would particularly prefer. This isn't my favorite, but it's the most common one used. And what it is, is it is an understanding of scripture from a different angle. It's asking the questions, if we wrestle with all of scripture and try to understand God, and his salvation plan and the universe through wrestling with all those scriptures, what categories come out of it? And what do those categories describe? And those categories are technically called doctrines. So what different doctrines do we find in scriptures? So the doctrine of the Trinity. When you compare all the scripture verses about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, it seems to come to something called the Trinity. What does that mean? How does that help me to understand the universe. Oh, hello. Excuse me. Maybe that's a sign that I should stop soon. <laughs> okay, well, lastly but not least, and I'm going to go five minutes over. I'm sorry, Adam. <laughs> You're going to hate me for that. Um, but actually, I'm going to stop using the PowerPoint because this is feeling like death by PowerPoint now. I want to talk about genre. Now, I said earlier that one of the key questions is to ask the question about language what type of book is this that helps me to understand what's being said? And there are different types of genre, different types of book. The Bible isn't just one book, it's a collection of 66 books. But within those 66 books, there are some commonalities between some of the books compared to others. And so a quick run through, if you open your contents page, go a few pages in, just before the Old Testament, Okay, so the first few books, Genesis, Exodus, a lot of that is of the genre called narrative or story. And understanding that these are stories helps you understand what's written within them. And stories, of course, have main characters. They have um, heroes, they have baddies. They have underlying messages that have been trying to be communicated through the stories. And understanding that these particular texts and those first two books 
And then in other parts of the Bible, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, uh, actually before that, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, those are also narratives. They're all stories about what God did and what God's people did and what God's enemies did. And so if you read those books with that set of lenses on and ask the questions, okay, so what's the meaning behind the story? How does my story fit into this story? How did this story reveal the larger story of what's going on? That would give you right understanding of genre, of narrative. Uh, secondly, there is the genre of law. So if you look at Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, a bit of Exodus, those are law books. Those aren't story predominantly. They're a set of instructions and rules, and they therefore need to be read in a different way. And the right questions are, do these rules apply today? What did these rules mean in their original context? Where can I see these rules being fulfilled? What do these rules point towards about God and his people? You have to read it differently. Okay, so those are law. Next ones. The majority in terms of number here, we have prophetic books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, all the way through to Malachi, all prophetic books of the prophetic genre. And those have to be read differently. They're not stories. They're not a set of rules. They are a set of prophecies from God, what God is saying directly through his prophets. And that nuance is how you read prophetic books. Because you've got to ask the question, okay, so what's the surrounding context there? Why are God's people being told off? What has triggered this particular reaction by God? What's being said time and time again that they're not getting? Interestingly, in prophecy, there's a lot of poetic imagery. So the same thing is said over and over again in slightly different ways, but in ways that in the original language would have been heard poetically and beautifully, even though often it was in terms of condemnation for the way that people are acting. Often in prophetic books, you need to look beyond the prophetic books to what are they pointing towards? Is it pointing towards Jesus' first coming into his second coming? What's it pointing towards? And we'll be looking at all these things as we go through the Bible. Then also in the Old Testament, there are wisdom books. So this is mainly Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, some would say Song of Songs, and some of the Psalms as well. And wisdom is all about what a Old Testament lecturer of mine once said, living life skillfully. That actually God giving ways to live life skillfully. These aren't hard and fast direct rules, however. So when it says that the, the diligent worker will reap a great harvest, that's an observation of what tends to be the case. But it's not guaranteed to be true. Because sometimes there are other factors at work. There might be a diligent worker, but there might be a hideous neighbour who, who routes up all the crops. These are tried and tested, God-given patterns of life that are described in these wisdom books. And also, in Ecclesiastes, the limits of them, that actually you need more than just wisdom. Then, in the Old Testament, there are psalms. They're a whole genre of themselves. They are songs. Songs of lament, songs of thanksgiving, songs of confession. Songs that are hard to actually pin down into particular types of song. It helps to know 
something about the type of song it is, though. There are groups of songs that help you to understand each other. So songs of lament. There are lots of those. Psalm 88, for example, darkness is my closest friend. Psalm 42, why are you downcast all my soul? Songs of thanksgiving, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to praise him. They all come together in different groups there in the Psalms. And then moving on to the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and perhaps you could argue Acts is the second part of Luke. They are of a particular type of narrative called gospel narrative, where there is a central character. And guess who the central character is? It's Jesus. So just like the Old Testament narratives, but refined around a single person. And so that should inform how you're reading it. These gospel authors are intending to reveal Jesus to you. So what's it saying about Jesus, first and foremost? Then lastly, I was open ultimately, Romans through to Jude are epistles. They're letters to the church. Now, unfortunately, many of these letters are only half the conversation. They are Paul or someone else writing in response to certain situations and contexts. Imagine that you're hearing one half of the telephone conversation, not the other. That's what's often going on in these letters. So be careful. Try to work out, perhaps, what's going on on the other half of the telephone conversation. Don't presume that, though. You could be hearing something else completely when it comes to it. Tricky, actually. What was originally going on in some of these letters that you need to work out? And then lastly, the book of Revelation and also parts of Daniel, the last half of Daniel, is apocalyptic. Now, I have the privilege of doing the last session on Revelation, so I won't go into it too much now. But one of the hallmarks of the apocalyptic is that it's highly symbolical, highly symbolical. And it also requires you to really understand the whole Bible because it references bits of the Bible, one after the other, in machine gun fashion almost. And those two things combined, highly symbolical and biblically expensive, let's just say, make it hard to read. But actually, the, the battle isn't lost. If you know your Bible well enough, if you can understand what's being alluded to, and if you understand some of the symbols and what they meant at the time, there's rich treasure in those genres. I've got to stop there. I've gone nine minutes over time. I'm very sorry. That was a whistle-stop tour of how to read the Bible. Bless you guys as you do so. Thank you, Jit, for episode one. There's tea and coffee and biscuits available. Could I encourage you to get tea or coffee if you would like it and then to come back and sit down again? so that we can carry on as quickly as possible. If you stop there and chat with your mates, then there will be another half an hour getting going and there will be another half an hour before we stop. So just uh, for your encouragement, go get something to drink now, um, bring it back. You can chat with the people as you're sitting waiting for us to begin again. And we'll get, get going as soon as some, everybody's got something. No, it's cool, bro. It's cool. Um, I think we knew this was going to, you know, be a bit tricky. You started late anyway, so you know. Okay. That's the driest one to do. Yeah. <laughs> ah, it was.
But it, it, it was very easy to swallow that. No doubt many of us, we just have that taste, that sense of the indescribable, unbelievable creativity of our God. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you have created around us and for us that you have created within your world. Speak to us now of your creative life and our life within it. Amen. Adam. I have the power of the, uh, of the slide thingy-majiggy, which is great. Um, where to start? Okay. Um, well, we've been thinking it would be a really silly thing to do, wouldn't it? Just to um, take a book and start kind of halfway through, kind of, and say, do you know what? Uh, I'm just going to start in this half and I'm going to ignore this half. So that would be a really stupid thing to do. Another really stupid thing to do would be to take a bit of a book and go, do you know what? I'm just going to read that. And that's everything that I need to know. That'd be really stupid, wouldn't it? Just to kind of focus in on one part of a book and just ignore the rest. So that's been really helpful to think about that with JIT. Let's not do that when it comes to the Bible. Now, uh, would you turn with me to, I know we're looking at Genesis, but let's start in Ephesians chapter 1, because it's my favourite book of the Bible. And, I'm, uh, and, 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 um, and, and other people are stealing my material, so let's steal some of, some of someone else's. And it's not my material, it's all God's. So let's just delight in what God has said. Ephesians chapter 1, page 1173, as we kick off. Um, because what we're going to see over this week is that God's massive plan is to bring everyone everywhere under King Jesus, and it's glorious. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. And he, God, made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's God's big plan for the world, is to make a massive Jesus family, to bring everyone, everywhere, under the rule and reign of King Jesus. As we move uh, from Genesis to Revelation in nine sessions, hopefully we're going to see the right response to this king is repentance and faith in him, knowing and believing that his way is way better than our own way, submitting to his rule. Our plan this week is to help us be a bit like Bear Grylls. So um, as, as, as Bear jumps out of his helicopter like this, you notice that on his back he's got a parachute. And um, whenever Bear drops into an unknown territory, the first thing he does is gets his bearing. And that's what we want to help to give all of us is a better bearing on whenever we land anywhere in the whole Bible, we can get our bearings pretty quickly, work out where we are, and then get going at finding food and water and other things. So let's start at Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. Let me just say kind of one, one thing about Genesis. It's, it's a book of two halves. 
Uh, Genesis chapter 1 through to chapter 11 is the first half. The second half of the book comes in Genesis 12 to Genesis 50. Uh, 1 to 11 is uh, all to do with the creation of everything, the fall of humanity, and God's judgment. And, from, uh, and part 2 from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50 uh, is all about the covenant promises that God made to Abraham. The election, the choosing of Abraham, and then the preservation of the family in which the promise has been made to Abraham and his family. More on that in a little bit. So we're on page three, I think, in our Bibles. Uh, Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first thing to stress is this. Prior to anything, before there was anything else out there, before the angels existed, before a molecule or an atom was, God is present. In the beginning, God is there. God is other than his creation. He does not need his creation. He's not dependent on his creation. Another scary theological word is assay. God is other than his creation. He is the, uh, he's the creator of it. He's other. He's different. And this one God who's present at the beginning is the powerful creator of everything. So the uh, first picture on your handout uh, should be a, a, a picture that was first drawn by the 20th century uh, philosopher and theologian Cornelius Van Til. And through this picture, he wanted to show his students the difference in a picture between the Christian worldview and the non-Christian worldview. And he wanted to argue that all of us have colored lenses by which we view the world, that we see everything. Uh, when I was working in the clinic a few years ago, I had a patient come to the clinic and um, it was my last patient of the day and I was treating this horrible Veruca and I had this lady really high up in the chair and unfortunately I'm, uh, as I'm working away on this Veruca a bit of it managed to land square in my eye it was horrible and um, uh, uh, I, um, I phoned up my dad and said dad you're going to have to help me out I got this lady out of the clinic she paid the money and left and I got a lift up to the local hospital by my dad where I was met by this A&E team who put this anaesthetic in my eye and then a brown dye so they could see this foreign body lingering around in there and it colored everything I was seeing everything through these kind of brown kind of tinges and um, amazingly they got it out it was fine I was okay I've still got both eyes they're both mine um, and, and Cornelius Van Til wants to say this all of us view the world through colored lenses we've got these kind of colored cemented glasses uh, on our faces and so he says the Christian worldview and the non-Christian worldview are very different. The Christian worldview says there's a creator, that's this first big circle, and the second circle is the creation. And the non-Christian would say, actually, there is no God. Um, and what the non-Christian does, actually, in, in, in kind of diminishing God, they bring God down to our level. And they say, actually, God's part of the creation. They bring God down. Or we can do the other thing. We can elevate ourselves up. So there's no distinction between us and God. Uh, so there's two ways in which we can do that. But the Bible's really clear right from the beginning that there is a creator God. 
and God creates everything um, by his words. And he creates out of nothing. I think it might be in your hand out there. He creates ex nihilo. God creates out of nothing. So when I fancy dazzling Mel and the kids with my culinary skills, I decided recently to make um, roulade, raspberry roulade. I thought this would be a great pudding to try and master. So um, I got the eggs and did some stuff to the eggs, put some sugar in it and all that kind of stuff. Whatever Mary Berry was telling me to do, I was kind of following her. Um, I uh, added some butter into the mix as well, chucked that in the oven for the dedicated amount of time, and then out came sweet scrambled eggs, which was absolutely disgusting. It wasn't pleasant. Nobody wanted to eat my creation. Um, and, um, well, it was pretty awful. It was. It was, it was rubbish. Um, and I had to throw it away. It was so bad, I had to chuck it away. Uh, well, why do I say that? Well, because two things in which we see that God's creation is not like my raspberry roulade. Firstly, God created everything out of nothing. I had ingredients to use uh, to make my sweet, sweet scrambled egg. Uh, and God's creation was good, not like my roulade, which was horrible. Seven times in Genesis chapter 1, we're told the creation is good. And then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, we're told at the end, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. So notice uh, God creating. There's a rhyme, uh, a rhythm, and a pattern to the creation. God creates by speaking, Genesis 1, uh, verse Three, and God said, verse 6, and God said, verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, and verse 20. And it was so, notice that, verse 7, verse 9, verse 11. There's this rhythm, there's this pattern to the creation. 30, 35 times uh, God is active in speaking and creating and blessing his creation. And not only does God create by his word, but he also rules by his word too. Do we see that? So um, I think you've got this. You probably can't see my writing on here. Probably better in your handouts. Uh, we've got this framework hypothesis that's been put together. That in the Old Testament, when, when, when something's named in the Old Testament, uh, it's, it, it's a demonstration of rule over it. So God creates the light and the darkness, uh, the day and the night. Um, and so God rules over both of them, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 5. God, uh, v- verse 8, uh, calls the expanse sky. God rules over the sky. Verse 10, God creates the dry ground, calls it land. God creates the seas. Uh, he, he calls those by name. He makes it, he names it, he creates it, he's exercising rule over it, rule and authority. Mel and I, uh, in 2010, we bought a house on the Isle of Wight. And um, if I wanted to rename my house and call it Denley Towers, I could do that. Um, if I wanted to do the unthinkable and buy Laura Ashley curtains that were brown and spotted, I could do that too. If I wanted to fill it with IKEA furniture, I could do that as well. It's my house. I could do what I want with it. I kind of rule over it to some degree. I'd have, obviously have to speak to Mel about this uh, as well. But God completely rules over his creation because he made it. 
And it's important to note this, that the point of contact between God and his world is always through his words. Cornelius Van Til had those two lines showing the connection between God and his world, his creation. The creator in his creation uh, is through those two lines, through his words, and through us being able to relate to God as we speak to him in prayer. So do we see that God creates through his word, he blesses his creation through his word, and he rules his creation through his words. Ultimately, we know later that the words is the Lord Jesus. In John chapter 1, fairly parallel account to Genesis 1, in the beginning was the words, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's the word personified, Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being, sustaining all things by his powerful words. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have an account of the creation. God creates and orders, and he does it purposefully. Hopefully that handout uh, is helpful for that. And the pinnacle for the creation comes on page 4, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Humanity Man and woman created in the image of God. No room for chauvinism in the Bible. You and I are different from everything else that God created. We've been made in the image of God. We've been created for relationship like God, Genesis 1.26. We're to relate to him as our creator and we're to rule the creation under him, as many rulers uh, for God under him. What's the extent of that rule? Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, the second part of the verse. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves along the ground. Universal rule for God's creatures. We're to rule for him. Uh, over his creation. What a massive privilege to be a man or a woman here this evening. What a great privilege to be made in the image of Almighty God. And then we have this rather comedic moment. Uh, I mean, I really like this in Genesis chapter 2. God says that it's not good, verse 18, Genesis chapter 2, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. I don't know whether you've ever really thought this through. Let's just kind of think about verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed uh, out of the, the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, exercising rule over them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. 
This makes me kind of think about blind dates, you know, and where did blind date originate from? And, and I think it's here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't come from Silla Black and fr- from our Graham with a quick recap. It actually came from the Bible. So um, just kind of picture the scene. Let's um, flick on a couple of slides. So here's kind of Adam in the garden uh, and, uh, uh, and, and kind of on one side of the screen. And the giraffe or the duck-billed platypus or the hippo on the other side of the screen. And as they're revealed to Adam, uh, he's got the job of kind of naming them and also checking them out to see whether they're a suitable helper. Uh, and fortunately, no suitable helper was found. Uh, so God creates the woman for the man. Verse 22. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. He said, the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. They'll become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Brilliant. There is a woman for the man. They're naked and no shame. Perfect creation. What a wonderful world. In Genesis 2, verse 2, we're told that God had finished his work of creating and God rested. That the goal of the creation, if you like, is summed up here, that there's rest for God. There's rest. That was the goal. And notice that the seventh day doesn't end like day one to six. There's no end to that seventh day. Perhaps that's a question that you can write in the back to be picked up at the last session. Well, let's, let's, let's dig into a little bit more of the text. There's a command and a threat given to the man who's in the garden, Genesis 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, any tree. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. There's great liberty given by God to the couple. They're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But there's one single prohibition. You must not eat from the one tree. If you do that, you'll die. Just picture kind of Adam and Eve peering out across the veranda. The wonderful garden that God had made. They can eat from the gooseberry bush. Yummy. The banana tree. They can have that. Eve can rustle up some amazing cherry tart for Adam. It's going to be great. Maybe Adam can cook some roulade with some raspberries in it. It'd be great as well. It'd be, it'd be brilliant. But um, isn't, that, isn't that just a wonderful picture? This, this vast garden. They can eat from any tree apart from the one. They're naked. They felt no shame. Verse 25. Perfect relationship with each other. Perfect relationship with God. Perfect relationship with the creation. They're God's people. Adam and Eve. They're in God's place, the Garden of Eden, and they're enjoying God's creation in his presence, experiencing rest and joy, being with God, under his rule, over his creation. And if we had a bit more time, I'd probably put on Louis Armstrong, and we could dig into this text a bit more, uh, and we could sing together. What a wonderful world. No time for that. Let's press on. Genesis chapter 3. 
Well, we're introduced to this crafty creature called the serpent, who's more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Notice that, that he's a created creature. He's not like the creator God. He's been made. The New Testament identifies the snake as Satan. And we're never told where he came from. But he's created, therefore he's not eternal. He's not a co-rival with God or to God. He's part of the original creation. Satan had an origin. Um, and I think I've put some references in your handout uh, that allude to the fall uh, of Satan as well. No time to go into that now. But notice what the first thing the serpent does in the garden. Where's the first thing that he's going to kind of, what's the first thing he's going to go after? Well, he challenges God's words. Did God really say that? Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? No, God didn't say that at all. He said, you're free to eat from any tree. There's great liberty, we're told in verse 16. It's a lie. It's a twisting of the truth of God's words. The point of contact between God and his world is his words. So if you want to disrupt the relationship between the creator God and his world, what are you going to attack? God's words. That's where the attack comes from. And Satan twists the word and distorts the word and denies the word and casts direct doubt on the word of God. Did God really say that sex is the only place, uh, that marriage is the only place for sex? Does the Bible really say that Jesus is the only way to the Father? Does the Bible really say there's a place called hell? The same tactics of Satan are still very much at large in the world today. And the second point of attack uh, from the serpent is a direct denial of the judgment of God. Do we see that? Look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you'll die. I think she's uh, falling for him already. You will not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You will not surely die. God says, when you eat of it, you will die. Satan says, God's a liar. That's not going to happen. Satan's saying, God will not do what his word has said that he will do. And so uh, the word is distorted, it's twisted, it's denied. The judgment of God is um, denied. And Satan lies to them and the world over and the world, including ourselves, swallow this pill. Hook, line and sinker, we're done for. We do not believe there will be a judgment. Up to this point, Adam and Eve had only believed the truth about God and now they're believing lies about God. Uh, they, they adopt a position of false faith in the God who created them and gave them everything good. And what does the serpent offer them? Verse 5, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. You can have the knowledge of good and evil. You can decide for yourself uh, good and evil. That's what's on offer. 
from the serpents. Well, what does it mean to uh, have the knowledge of good and evil? In what sense does God know good and evil? It's a big question, isn't it? But it's clear from the rest of the Bible that God doesn't know evil in the fact that God does evil, not at all. He knows evil in the sense that he's the judge, he's the decider of what's good and what's not good. We've seen that in Genesis 1. He's the one who says what's good and what's evil. So, let's go to our next slide. There's uh, Adam. Uh, He's usurped God's authority and chucked God off the throne. Anybody know where that throne's from? Any guesses? Any, any 80s kids out there? Is it just me? It's He-Man, absolutely. Yeah, it's He-Man on his throne, absolutely. Uh, sorry for those of you who are listening to this in the car. You should have been here at Bible Week. It's a great picture. Um, let's move on. Um, so, uh, the devil offers Adam and Eve, you can decide for yourself. You can be the judge. You can be on the throne of your own life, making up your own decisions. Wouldn't it be great to be independent from God, making up right from wrong, good from evil, to suit yourself? Wouldn't it be good to be free from God's constraints? I'm going to do what I want to do. I want to be the boss with no concern for what God says. Genesis 3 verse 6, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Let's be really clear what happens in Eden. It's an overthrowing of God's government and God's rule. It's people deciding for themselves, we no longer want to submit to God's rule, we want to be the boss. We want to be our own God. And so as new rulers, new personal rulers who've kicked God off his throne, the results are disastrous. Uh, let's just kind of glance down from verse, verse uh, 7 to 24, speaks of this judgment of God and it's universal in its nature. Man is called to account and he's hiding from God in verse 8 to 10. It's a sad scene in verse 8. The man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he's walking in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Before man and God, perfect relationship, friendship, walking in the cool of the day. Now man is afraid of God. Why? Man's now a uh, co-rival, a rival ruler. I want to do things my way. God wants me to do things his way. There's conflict. Uh, in that approach. We now live in fear of God. There's judgment for the woman as well. Do we see that in verse 16? To the woman, God said, uh, I'll greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Uh, Through pain, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he'll rule over you. There's pain in childbirth and there'll be an unhealthy desire uh, over the man. The snake is called to account as well. Uh, verse 14, and he doesn't have a leg to stand on. That's the best joke of the night, I think. I'm sorry about that. Well, and, and we're told that ultimately he's going to be destroyed in verse 15. We'll come back to that. The man, the woman, the snake, there's comprehensive judgment all round. 
the man and woman, we, we read at the end of the account, are thrown out of the garden and bouncers are now put on the door to keep them out. God's people, Adam and Eve, no longer in God's place in Eden. They've been kicked out. They're, they're outside of God's rule. And life's going to be hard now for them. There's no way back, we're told in verse 24. Uh, there's a flaming sword flashing back and forth, guarding the way to the tree of life that, that now they have no access to. The sin revolution begins. Fractured relationships vertically with God as humans turn away from God in rebellion. God turns away from them too in his judgment. The warm friendship they experience with God uh, is no longer available. It's been destroyed. Horizontal relationships with one another is now going to be difficult now. The battle of the sexes begins. And downwardly with the creation as the creation itself is now fractured and out of kilter. So the creation's out of control. We see that from 17 through to 19. Now chapters 4 to 11 really speak about what's life going to be like outside of Eden, outside of God's place. And it's a sad picture. They're under God's curse and they're outside of God's blessing and rule. Uh, in, in Genesis chapter 4, we have the world's first murder. The first man ever born to a woman kills his brother. How sad's that? It's tragic. In chapter 5, death rules. Okay. Genesis 5 and verse 5. Adam lived 930 years and then he died. Verse 8. Seth lived 912 years and then he died. Enosh, verse, verse 11, lived 905 years and then he died. And then he died. And then he died. Chapter 6, we see the, um, the complete depravity of sin. Look at verse 5 in Genesis 6. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Every thought, only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he'd made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I'll wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth. I'm grieved that I've made them. I was in the early learning center a couple of days ago on Friday with Mel. We were looking around for Christmas presents for Joel and we saw a Noah's Ark. It's kind of one of those kind of classic toys, isn't it, for kids and um, Actually, it's probably one of the most scary pictures in the whole Bible. It's one of the scariest stories in the Bible. What, what the flood represents is the comprehensive, universal, total judgment of God on, on sin and wickedness. And we, in some way, have kind of trivialized it to make toys out of it with kind of a couple of cute little animals that go on board the ark. It's a picture the New Testament picks up on and looks back to and says, look out, judgment's coming again. Judgment's coming. And it looks like the flood. Everything was wiped out. The only safe place was on board the ark. Just like now for us, the only safe place would be to be with Jesus. There's going to be another universal, complete, total judgment day coming. We're to look back on the flood in horror as a reminder of that's what it's going to be like on the last day. Flick forward to Genesis chapter 11. 
and the Tower of Babel. And evil reaches new heights with the tower. Humanity gathered together in rebellion against God and they say, God, we will not go from this place. We're staying here. Shove off. And God confuses their languages um, and they're scattered over the whole face of the earth. 11 verse 9. Now, just come back with me to Genesis 3 momentarily. Let's have a glimmer of hope. Because Genesis 3 uh, and verse um, 8 is rightly where the Bible could and should have ended. There's no reason why God should have continued this story. After the overthrowing of God's government, right after the man and woman take the fruit off the tree and disobey God, well, that could have been curtains on the whole show. And I want to argue that everything absolutely everything from God to his creation is by grace everything is by grace and it's by God's grace that we have a Genesis 3 verse 9 and a Genesis 4 and all the way through um, to the New Testament now what do I mean by grace let me give you a small picture Uh, Maya had a friend over recently And her and her friend got up to semantics. Well, I'm not sure if it was Maya. It might have been Tyler. To this day, I still don't know. And one of them had managed to leave the bathroom tap on upstairs in the bathroom. And Mel had prepared dinner. And we sat downstairs below the bathroom eating our dinner. And uh, amazingly, the lights kicked off. And the lights in the um, uh, above us, the kind of light fixture, turned into a power shower as water started to soak the dining room table and our dinner. Our nice, crispy, fluffy roast potatoes had turned into mash. It wasn't particularly nice. And we couldn't work out from which one of the kids it was uh, who'd done this. But we sorted out some more food and we were, we were gracious to the kids. We didn't treat them badly. We didn't send Maya's friend home. Uh, we, we put on a movie for them. We gave them their sweets and we also gave them dinner. That was grace. They didn't need to be treated well. They didn't deserve to be treated well. In fact, quite the opposite, as I was on my hands and knees with towels mopping up the water, trying not to leave a stain on the ceiling. Sorry about that, David. We can talk later. Um, so, uh, fortunately, everything's, everything's okay. That's grace. We're treated well when we don't deserve it. That's a little picture uh, of grace. The fact that God created a wonderful world was by grace. The giving of the woman to the man was by God's grace. The variety of food and vegetation and animals is all by grace. God's rule over them to safeguard them in the garden was by God's grace. Genesis chapter 3 verse 9. And the Lord God called to the man, where are you? That's by God's grace. Where are you? I wonder if that's a question to someone here tonight where are you where's your heart at where are you at in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ at the moment do you feel like the anchor spiritually speaking has come up and you've drifted from Jesus perhaps you've kind of let go of his word a little bit in your life you feel like you're a million miles away Um, well there's hope for us can you hear God he's calling after you knocking on the door of your life where are you come back to me God says 
God, in an undeserved act of kindness, came looking for the man. It's all by grace. Did I mention that? Amazing grace that God came looking for them. God made the first move. It's God who wanted to put right where they'd gone wrong. And among the carnage, we see a glimmer of hope in verse 15. Uh, Genesis 3:15. I'll put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring, your seed, and her seed. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Let's go to our next picture. One's going to come from the woman's line and is going to do battle with a serpent. A seed's going to come and there's going to be a fight. And the, the, uh, the one from the woman uh, is going to be wounded in this battle. The snake's going to strike and harm the heel uh, of the seed of the woman. But ultimately, this one who's going to come is going to crush, is going to crush the snake. One from Eve's line is going to come and do battle with the serpent, and he's going to crush him. So the Bible hunt is now on for the serpent crusher. Who's it going to be? Who's going to come and do battle with the serpent and be victorious and crush him? And he's going to be wounded in the process. Who is this, the serpent crusher? And so now the search is on. The story of the Bible is this. How's this going to happen? Who's it going to be? Uh, and how's it all going to work out? How will God bring his people back into his place under his rule and blessing? Well, part two, let's turn to Genesis chapter 12 and the call of Abram. Genesis 2, verse 12, uh, sorry, Genesis 12 and verse 1. I think I might need some more caffeine. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and, I'll, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Up to this point, we've seen rebellion. We've seen wickedness, every thought, only evil all the time. We've seen the high point in Babel in uh, Babel and now God in his grace makes these wonderful promises to Abram. I think covenant is one of the most important concepts in the whole Bible. Covenant is a solemn commitment. Uh, God commits himself to his people by making binding promises and these are uh, binding promises, a bit like marriages. So um, what do uh, married couples say to each other? I promise that I'll love you and um, uh, give my life to you and serve you. Uh, She says, I promise I'll love you back. Uh, I promise not to leave my uh, my hairs in the sink after I've shaved. She promises not to complain at my driving and to spend all my money. Malamoni joking. Um, And uh, uh, we make these amazing promises till death us do part. And the covenant is God's promise, his binding promises to us, his people. He's the one who's going to do it, and it's by grace. Did I say that? Everything's by grace? Genesis 12 makes that clear to us. And God uh, uh, makes these wonderful promises and promises to reverse the effects of the fall in Eden to his people. And he makes known his desire to bring his people back under his rule, in his place, under his blessing once again. 
And the Old Testament and the New Testament are the outworkings of these wonderful promises. But I want to say that Genesis 12 is a key chapter in the whole Bible. If you don't know this one, mark it. Go home, underline it. It's incredible. Because we see these, this threefold promise being worked out. Who are God's people going to be once again? No time to do group work, I'm afraid. Uh, but verse 2, we're told that Abram will be made into a great nation. There's going to be a great nation. There's going to be another people. There's going to be another place, we're told in verse 1, that he's to leave his homeland and go to a new land, which we're told in verse 5 and verse 7 is the land of Canaan. Uh, and clearly, there's blessing here from God. God's the one who says six times in three verses, I will do this. I will bless you. God's blessing is with them. And he'll curse those who oppose him. So there will be a new people. There's going to be a new place for them. And God's blessing will be with them once again. They're unconditional covenant promises that God will keep. God says, I promise that I'll keep the promise. You can take that to the bank. I promise I'll do this, says God. I'll bless you and I'll make your name great. So there are no conditions to this promise. It's not I'll, I'll bless you if you go around in sackcloth and ashes and kind of whip yourself every day of your life. It's not that at all. God says I'm going to do it. So now our focus shifts really on God and these promises and how these are going to unfold with his people. So we're kind of changing gear to think now about the family of the promise. The family of the promise. And it's Abraham's family. Let's go to our next slide. And so we see that this family begins... Uh, and uh, we're told in Romans chapter 9, verse 6 to 8, I wonder if you want to make a reference of that to look at later, that not all of Abraham's children are Abraham's children. So um, you can see there on the left that the promise doesn't go down the line of Hagar and Ishmael. They're nothing to do with the promise. On the right, it doesn't go through Ketra and uh, her son, Zimram, Joshkin, Midian, Midian, Ishbak and Shua. Actually, the promise goes down the line of uh, Abraham to Isaac, then to Jacob, not to Esau, and then to the twelve. And then we see that the promise goes down the line through Judah. And we might expect it to go through Rachel to Joseph, but it doesn't. So our focus shifts now on this promise and the fulfillment through the family of the promise. But the next thing to think about is the survival of this promise actually seems really unlikely. And it's under constant threat. It seems touch and go, actually, whether or not the promise is actually going to get going itself. Why? Well, because Abraham himself is ancient and his wife is barren. How can they produce offspring when they're past it? They're geriatrics. Just kind of imagine the scene on the uh, maternity ward uh, way back then as this kind of really old lady comes in who's pregnant. I mean, jaws would be dropping all over the place. The, the, the chatter amongst the WI uh, would be kind of crazy, wouldn't it? Uh, what's, what's she doing being pregnant at her age, about to give birth? And to top that off, flip with me to Genesis chapter 22. We see survival of the promise is really in danger now. 
Abraham's tested by God, and Abraham brings Isaac to be sacrificed. God calls him to bring this promised uh, child and to sacrifice him before God. Look at verse 9. Uh, when uh, uh, Abraham and um, Isaac, when they reached the place God had told, told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to harm him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Threat to the promise straight away. Um, I mean, what an incredible test of Abraham's faith in God and the extraordinary promise that God had made to him. And again, by the grace of God, a substitutionary sacrifice is there instead of the boy being killed. We read in verse 13, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. God is amazing. He provided a sacrifice instead of the boy. Abraham is commended for his faith, that he was willing as a father to sacrifice his son. But God, the ultimate father, didn't withhold his own son from us. He's the one who went through and sacrificed his son for us. And he, he was the one who died for our sin so that we can know God. God was the one who willingly went through with the most costly sacrifice, his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Genesis chapter 4, more threat to the promise. Isaac, uh, he, he's got a problem, he's got no wife. The, uh, the land's filled with Canaanite women and he's not allowed to take one of those for himself. Long story short, he finds a wife. Um, Rebecca bears him two sons, uh, Esau and Jacob. No time really to, to go into that now, but um, Jacob steals the birthright from Esau. He's the one who gets the blessing uh, from his father. Um, and um, uh, Esau's furious uh, at what Jacob has done and tries to kill him, actually. There's this threat again to the promise. And for a number of chapters, it's a bit touch and go whether or not uh, Jacob's going to be okay. By the time we get to Genesis 33, um, the, the lads make up with each other. It's a pretty big bust up, but they're uh, reconciled. By the time we get to Genesis 35, Jacob has returned to Bethel where Ab Ab Abraham originally set up his altar to worship God in Genesis 12 verse 8. And now at this point, Jacob's got quite a few sons. In fact, he's got 12 sons altogether. Uh, for the keen eye that spotted the picture, there's 13 there. That's because Dina is actually a daughter uh, and not a son. If you want to read uh, about that, look at Genesis 34. Incredible story to read if you don't know that one. Well, I'm just going to flick forward to our last character, really, in the story, because we're very much in injury time. The, the last person we want to think about is Joseph. And I want to think about Joseph momentarily with you through the lens of the covenant. Just thinking about Joseph through the lens of the covenant. 
He's the father's favorite boy, we know the story, and the brothers get rid of him. They sell him as a slave and he's taken to Egypt. Uh, he's, he's taken to Egypt not only because he was the favorite, but because he said to his family, you're going to bow down and worship me. That's what you're going to do. And they hated him for it. Famine strikes the land. Uh, he's, uh, 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 Joseph at this point is now out of the land and he's in Egypt. Uh, and God's working through him. Famine strikes the land and the family of the promise don't have any food. They're starving and they're hungry. So they set out to Egypt to try and find some food. And in effect, when they get there, they find that Joseph is now what, what we might call the prime minister. He's the number two in Egypt. God's worked out his promises amazingly. And by the end of Genesis chapter 49, sorry I've skipped a little bit, but let's just go there. Genesis uh, 49 and 50. Uh, Joseph is in Egypt and there is a people, there's a family that's been growing. And through God's blessing and rule, the family of the promise are rescued from this famine. And in uh, chapter 50, verse 18, we read this. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves, they said. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. At this point of the story, there's 70 people in the family. There's, there is a people. And they're outside of the land. They're in Egypt. But they've experienced God's blessing. He's kept them. He's made these promises. Did I say it was by grace? And he's brought them to where they are, by grace. He's provided for them. There's food for them. Uh, they're experiencing God's blessing but they're not in the land. They're in Pharaoh's territory. And uh, verse 22 to 25 uh, make it quite clear to us that they're not to stay in Egypt. They're to move on. There will be a land, and we'll pick up on that um, tomorrow. But the people's growing, and um, we're now waiting for God to deliver them and bring them back into the land where they'll be back under God's rule and blessing once again. I'm starting to spot a bit of me go. I'm getting some myself where many eyes go glazy. Um, we're kind of glazing over, so let's kind of stop there. Um, but let's just remember the great things that God's done for us. He's the God who's done everything by grace and has provided a sacrifice for us so that we can know God. Um, and let's take a moment as Mike comes up as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Thank you. Just a moment of quiet as we savour that grace of God, as we prepare ourselves on this Sunday evening to receive not only the blessing of, Jesus, of God's word, but the physical enactment of his sacrifice for us.